Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. stone bird sitting on either gate there. He would learn later that they were coots, for this was originally the home of the coot family. It was now Patrician College, Ballyfin de Maine, Port Leisha, County Leash, a boarding school for boys. It was September 1954. He was 12 years of age, and holidays apart, this would be his home for the next five years. He was fearful. He had left the familiarity and security of home in a small village in County Meath, 60 miles away. The Ford Prefect rattled over the cattle grid, the first time he had seen a cattle grid. Canadian gates, they were called, and they seemed to clang goodbye, goodbye to the village, goodbye to his friends, his parents, goodbye to the world. The avenue was long, winding out of the autumn sunlight, into dark woods, and then suddenly into the light again. And there it was, a huge mansion, the biggest he had ever seen. Four great columns guarded the entrance doors, where the president stood greeting the parents. It exhibits a perfect example of the Grecian style of building at its purest era. The principal story of the house contains an entrance hall, 24 feet by 28. From this is an entrance to the Grand Saloon, a splendid apartment, divided into three compartments by ionic columns, the centre compartment being finished with a rich pendential dome from which it receives its light. From one extremity of this apartment opens the Grand Staircase, decorated with columns also. From the opposite side of the saloon, a circular anteroom is entered, covered with a highly finished dome supported by Corinthian columns of Scaliola. From the anteroom, you pass into the library, with its large bay in the centre, likewise subdivided into compartments by screens of Scaliola columns. From the anteroom, you enter the billiard room. The library lies en suite with the drawing room and the conservatory. The dining room and morning room likewise open to the grand saloon. Ballyfin was barred from the Coots, the Coot family, at that particular time, uh, it was in the middle of the Depression. Nobody wanted land. 
So uh, the house and the 640 acres were bought by the Patrician brothers. They say £9,000. We hadn't that much money or any at the time, but we spent years paying off the debt. And many of the houses and many of the provinces helped us in years afterwards to meet the, the debt. The brothers wore long black soutans with green sashes. He shook hands with the president, Brother Silverius. He would learn later that the boys called him Punk. Brother Silverius said he hoped this young man would be as good as his brother. It was good having a brother in the school already. It helped in the settling in. They climbed the two flights of stone stairs to the dormitory. On the first landing were the washroom and toilets. They would spend many cold winter mornings in the washroom, waiting for a free hand basin for a quick wash before mass. The dormitory was on the next landing, a long, L-shaped room with 50 or 60 beds. His brother chose two beds halfway down. The trunk was opened and the starched sheets with his name sewn on the corner were procured. They made up the beds and packed their lockers with clothes and toiletries. The dormitory grew noisier as more boys arrived. Old boys, anyone in second year or beyond, shouted greetings and swaggered about knowingly. The new boys tried hard to look settled and happy and knowing. And then it was time for his parents to go. He swallowed hard and said goodbye to his father. His mother kissed him. He knew she would miss him, the baby of the family. He fought back the tears and waved goodbye as the car moved down the avenue, around the bend and into the woods. Many a tear has to fall But it's all in the game All in the wonderful game That we know as love He awoke to a new and strange world. Brother Angelus marched through the dormitory, ringing a handbell. It was so unusual to find himself sharing a room with 60 other boys. The hubbub and clamour grew as the washroom filled up and boys queued up for hand basins. He washed quickly. The towel smelled of home. He buried his face in it, wishing that smell would linger. His brother told him to hurry. The day proper began as every day would begin, with Mass in the Oratory. Nomine Patris et Fili et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. In Troi Vodil Taradei. Adeum Father Phelan came in from Ballyfin village to say Mass. The juniors knelt at the front of the oratory. He himself was right under the huge fireplace, which was now boarded up. Each seat had a series of white enamel numbers affixed to it. Later, he would learn how to unscrew the number with a nail file, insert a message behind the number, and screw it back on. In this way, he would be remembered in 50 years' time, maybe forever. 
He thought of the many times he had served Mass in his home village, the dark winter mornings when the frost pinched his face on the way to the church. He would gladly exchange that for this bright September morning. He wondered what his parents were doing now. His mother, probably at Mass, praying for him. His father, stoking the range. Roy, the dog, waiting to be released from his kennel. He wished he was at home. Apart from the oratory and the dormitory, the school had little to do with the mansion. Most of the school day was spent in a separate modern block. Uh, the four-storey block cost as much as uh, the domain, uh, approximately 9,000, more than 9,000. It was built in, it was opened in 1930. And to the four-storey block, which you are familiar with, you had the dining room, the study hall, second. Then there was the classrooms, and the top story was a dormitory. His own classroom was further up the yard in the quadrangle. A bewildering succession of teachers came in, some with equally bewildering new subjects. Brother Angelus taught geography. Brother Vincent taught commerce. Brother Gabriel, Irish. Brother Silverius, maths. Brother Joseph taught science. And Brother Declan taught Latin. He liked Latin and was good at it. It gave him a lasting interest in words. For others, Latin was a nightmare. If you didn't know your declensions, Brother Declan would wrap you on top of your head with the edge of a ruler. As he did so, he would cynically ask, What tune is that, Avic? As you grimaced in pain, you were expected to answer, The tune the old cow died to, brother. I suppose in the 50s and 60s, the boarding school was a... and 70s also, I'm sure the boarding school was a way of life. Lads came back, they came in September, and they went home at Christmas, came back in January, then home again at Easter. The last term perhaps was the nicest term, especially if there was no exams. Uh, they looked forward uh, to the games, hurling and football and handball were the uh, means by which they let off steam and it was the main interest of lads at school at that particular time. To be on a team was important. It meant <clears throat> that uh, you socialised a lot with other teams, you got out uh, maybe once or twice a week to play other teams and so on. He was never much good at games himself, playing only in the Chota Leagues Chota leagues? In boarding school, there were many new languages to be learned. We have a province in India, there'll be more patrician brothers in India now than there would in Ireland. And as a matter of fact, the novitiates are full, scholastics are, scholasticate is full. 
Uh, so uh, the green sash is there, and we hope it is there to, to stay. Mm. The old brothers that were here years ago, they used uh, Brother Patrick, so on, they used words like Pukka and Sab and Jaldi Jow and so on. They used those Indian words at lads. The young first years were called Chotis and so on, and a lot of those Indian words became commonplace here at that particular time in the 50s. If you didn't play, you watched the college teams train. Brother Joseph took the football teams. Brother Vincent the hurling. There was the promised thrill of going with the supporters in Dickie O'Brien's bus to places like Newbridge or Tullamore to cheer on the team. Two, four, six, eight, who do we appreciate? B-A-L-L-Y-F-I-N, Ballyfin. Follow them up, follow them up. That's the way to win the cup. And win it they did. The senior hurlers won the Leinster Championship in 1956. He remembered seeing them pose for a photograph that would freeze them in youth forever. Shawnee Buckley, who would grace Kilkenny teams in years to come. Willie O'Grady, the sweetest of hurlers from Kilnall and Tipperary. Michael Daly from Clonaslee. Michael, who would die in a car accident. And Moss Downey, who was so handsome and well-groomed always that he was slagged every time he walked down the study hall. Moss Downey, who would die suddenly not many years later. The bell summoned them from the playing fields to the study hall. Their lives were regulated by that bell, a bell that had a history of its own. Well, up in the garden there's the bell door. And uh, why it's called the bell door, the present bell, student's bell, was uh, there. And uh, in Coote's time, it called the men to work in the morning. And it rang in the evening time at six o'clock to finish. Uh, so that bell has a lot of stories to tell, but from students who loved the sound of it and Which men who... who perhaps are all passed away now who worked in the place. At that particular time uh, there would be a hundred, over a hundred workers around the place in the gardens and there was three or four gardens, the farm and around the house. The study hall accommodated all the students. He spent nearly four hours there every night under the watchful eye of Brother Patrick or Brother Patricius. Brother Patrick found it hard to control things. He would invariably threaten to send Michael Daly up for the president. But Brother Patricius, Larry to the boys, was feared. He would appear silently at the desk of a troublemaker and bring his full weight behind a backhander across the neck. He hoped he would never incur the wrath of Larry. Study was interrupted by a break for tea. The boys lined up before charging downstairs to the refectory. Each table had a prefect and two sub-prefects in charge of giving out the food. The refectory was noisy and boisterous. 
The food was sparse. Tea, bread and butter, with a spoonful of jam on Fridays and Sundays. Someone at the table might have a tin of beans or sardines, and if he was lucky, they might share. Breakfast was tea, bread and butter, and porridge. He couldn't eat the porridge, and would never eat it again. On Sunday morning, there was a sausage for breakfast, which was fine if he hadn't already lost it at Carl's or Pushapney. It was not unusual to have gambled away one sausage for six Sundays in a row. Dinner was filling, shepherd's pie and frog spawn, or sago, as long as the prefects didn't hog it all to themselves. The day ended as it had begun, in prayer. The days slipped by, slowly, into weeks. Life was measured in the number of days remaining in the term. He wrote on the back of his copybook, 56 days to go, roll on Christmas. The long wait was broken occasionally by a call, when parents would come to visit on a Sunday and bring much-appreciated supplies of sweets and food and pocket money. Sunday was a good day. It began with a little lie-in. Mass was an hour later, and the prospect of a sausage for breakfast, or even sausages, if things had gone well, at cards or in the handball alley. Reputations and fortunes of sausages, or even cigarettes, were won and lost in the alleys. Pudsey Ryan was the king of the alleys. Nobody stood a chance with him. Pudsey could butt a ball with deadly accuracy. He would stand in awe of Pudsey's power and precision, wondering how he could hit the ball so fiercely with a bare hand. He himself tried it, but his hand stung so badly he preferred to use a hurley afterwards. From 11 to 12 on Sunday morning was given to letter-writing. He wrote home every week, telling his parents that everything was fine and he was enjoying boarding school. Pretend you're happy when you're blue It isn't very hard to do And you'll find happiness without an end 
whenever you pretend. There wasn't much point in saying anything else. He would detail the trivial events of the past week and ask how all were at home, including Roy the dog. The letters had to be left unsealed for inspection. He supposed it was in case boys wrote to girls. But the boys who did that sent their letters out to be posted by day boys anyway. Brother Oliver was very angry one Monday morning when someone wrote to Charles Atlas, seeking a body like his, and signed Wally McNamara's name to it. Wally was very embarrassed. During letter writing, Brother Silverius came in and gave a talk to the students. It was his way of keeping discipline, and he would give grave warnings about the dangers of smoking or dodging class or not studying. Brother Silverius could be very cross indeed at times. You'll be pretending just like me. The world is mine. After dinner on Sunday, he was free to do as he pleased. Well, not quite as he pleased. There might be a game of hurling or football, or he might just pal around with his friend Rosie Rice. His name was Morris, but everyone called him Rosie because of his red cheeks. Nicknames were common and often deadly accurate. One boy was called Sewerage because he farted a lot. There were three handsome brothers in the school who were called Betty Grable, Mitzi Gaynor and Debbie Reynolds. And a boy called Richie Mackey was christened Scratchy Mickey within weeks of arriving in school. If you didn't play games, you went for walks in the grounds, remembering always to stay within bounds. Do not walk in the garden, O oh boys. The gardens with their orchard were out of bounds, as was the lake. Some boys were very daring and would go out over the domain wall to Delaney's shop, or worse still, to Phelan's pub. The worst of all, he heard once, was that there were girls up at the caves. Julia is a little girl. Anyone caught up there at the caves would surely be expelled. Sometimes there was the excitement of a row behind the handball alleys. If the boys heard the call of Nicks in time, they got away. If not, they would be up at the president's office next morning. If the afternoon was wet, he would stay in the study hall and read or play push hapney, or there might be a big match on the radio. The referee has gone right up on top of the play there, and the, I think there's a free-in for... Yes, a free-in for Cork, for Art Foley threw himself on that ball and saved a very dangerous situation. Christy Ring to take it. Now will Christy try for a goal and put Cork into the battle? He tries a low hard shot, and it's a goal! The shop opened on Sunday afternoon, and if you were not overboard in the red, you could buy sweets which were charged to your pocket money account. During study that evening, the hall echoed with the sound of slabs of Cleves toffee being split by placing them under the hinge of the desk and slamming the lid down on the slab. 
The Big Treat on Sunday nights was a film. Brother Vincent set up the projector and the boys sat up on their desks to watch anything from the Bowery Boys to John Wayne. Sometimes the film would break or the reels were in the wrong order. This gave Mick Finn, the handyman, the chance to sing his party piece, Me Old Killarney Hat, or as Mick had it, Me Old Scalara Hat. He remembered one film, Friendly Persuasion. Pat Boone sang the theme song, The I Love. He had seen Pat Boone one summer. In fact, he had stood beside him, on the crossbars of their respective bikes. It was a cheap way of watching the Irish Open Tennis Championships at Fitzwilliam in Dublin. His family had now moved to Dublin. Park your bike against the wall, stand on the crossbar, and you had a terrific view of all the tennis. Pat Boone was in Dublin making a film. He was just trying to be cool, but at least he could have afforded the half crown a day to get in. All the tennis greats came to Fitzwilliam then. Hode, Drobny, Lever, Bueno. But they all paled in comparison with the lovely Sandra Reynolds who was tall and slim and simply beautiful. Her graceful movements like the gazelle of her native South Africa. He no longer stayed without the walls. He scraped a half-crown together each day just to be closer to Sandra Reynolds. She was perfection. He had written to her once at Wimbledon, but no doubt she had a busy schedule. He understood. He loved Sandra Reynolds. Together they would be happy forever, even when they had retired after winning the Wimbledon mixed doubles for a record sixth successive time. The memories of that week in Fitzwilliam in July would keep him going for the summer. Years ground by, he sat the intercert exam and did very well. He was a good student. He didn't give any trouble. The pattern of the year was broken by a few notable events. One was the school retreat. The important thing about the three-day retreat was that silence had to be observed. That might mean using a crude sign language, but silence had to be observed. It was good for you. There were lots of Catholic Truth Society pamphlets left around for spiritual reading. The topics were extremely boring, but he enjoyed reading the conversations written inside the back cover. Is there a film this Sunday? Don't know. McMahon was caught smoking in the jacks. 
Have you been to confession yet? What's he like? Okay. I got a decade of the rosary. The important thing was that silence was observed. Father Sebastian gave talks on bad actions, bad thoughts, bad language. There were sniggers from the seniors at the back of the church. He was very worried about bad language, but the whole class was enrolled in the White Star League to help overcome the habit. He wore a little white star in his lapel and said a prayer from a leaflet every day. If you were really worried about something, you could drop a question in the question box and Father Sebastian would answer it during question time in the study hall. Larry O'Gorman didn't need a question box. He stood up bravely in the study hall and asked, Is it a sin to call a brother a fool? In the school uh, years ago, uh, the 1950s or 1940s were quite self-sufficient during the war. We provide our own uh, meat, as we do today, uh, potatoes, uh, vegetables from the garden and so on. Bread, yes, Brother Connett so, had his bakery over there and uh, uh, baked the bread usually every day. The brothers were no fools. They were honest, hard-working countrymen from Monaghan, Leash, Carlow or Tipperary. Men with ruddy, weather-beaten faces who might as well be his uncles or neighbouring farmers. Men who could turn from teaching honours maths to fixing the plumbing. Men with names ranging from the ordinary, Joseph, Vincent, Gabriel, to the classical, Angelus, Germanus, Silverius. Brother Conleth ran the bakery. Brothers Tiernock and Germanus worked the farm. Each autumn, the fifth years got a week off class to pick the potatoes. Every other year envied them. No classes and a big feed and early to bed each night. When his turn came at last, the potato picking was a disaster. A severe flu laid low many of the class. For those who survived that, the big feed of shepherd's pie one evening wrought havoc and kept the toilets engaged all night. It was a night that would be remembered, its memory etched permanently on a toilet door in terse graffiti. Remember the runs, October 25th, 1957. I'm all shook up, ooh, 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 yeah, yeah. My hands are shaking and my knees are weak I can't seem to stand on my own two feet Who do you think of when you have such luck? I'm in love I'm all shook up There were other more pleasant tasks in fifth year, however Mr. O'Reilly, or Jimmy Fuller as he was known Asked himself and Tim Dunn to help with cataloguing of books in the library. It was a pleasant change to be released from the study hall to work in the beautiful library, the original ballroom of the big house, and 
to work with books. There was a badly tuned piano in the library, and when they were left on their own, Tim would play Forgotten Dreams. It was good to handle books, to feel their bindings, to turn their often delicate leaves, and to wonder at the strangeness of their titles. Masterpieces of Eloquence, The Catechism of Perseverance, Volumes 1 to 4, Outlines of Dogmatic Theory. Dictionnaire Historique. In the classics section, there were authors with exotic names like Tacitus, Livy, Sallust, Ovid. There were writers from nearer home like Swift and Sheehan. And the Irish section was full of translations of writers like Jack London, Ryder Haggard, Captain Marriott. Books were good to hold and feel. It was very pleasant working in the library. The world outside was a long way from Ballyfin. Contact with that world was through the newspapers. There were constant arguments and rows over whose turn it was to get the one newspaper that was allotted to each class. There were stories of revolt in Hungary, a common market in Europe, and a strange thing called Sputnik in space. But the really important stories were in the sports pages and the cartoons. The adventures of Rip Kirby and Juliet Jones were followed avidly. And there was contact with the world through the one radio that sat in the middle of the study hall. One Saturday morning in December 1956, the boys listened to an amazing and wonderful story that came from the other side of the world. Houston, I think going a bit too soon. The lady coming up very fast. Into the straight they go, and Houston is holding on. And the lady is up with him. And the German Houston hides there. And the lady is going to win for error. And up comes Landy. And Houston is beaten. And the lady is going to win. And Houston hides back in the Landy boat. The uh, error wins fast from Houston hides and Landy. They cheered and cheered. Everyone wanted to be a Ronnie Delaney. Everyone was a Ronnie Delaney. Six months later, in May 1957, they gathered round the radio again in anticipation of another great victory. It's taken away by Hall of England as he's tackled. Halter Finney. Halter Finney. They're playing last time. Time is up as Finney comes back for England. Finney and Sayward. Finney centering now for England. Back to centre, he's going in, he's going in, he's beaten Sayward, he's beaten Sayward, he crosses, and it's a goal! Desolation, doom, disaster. An even worse disaster came the following year. He remembered coming down the stairs from class to find Desi Brady in tears. Desi's beloved Manchester United team had been all but wiped out in the Munich air disaster. Names like Liam Whelan, Tommy Taylor and Desi's great hero, Duncan Edwards, had become memories overnight. It was February 6th, 1958. When I was just a little girl 
my mother, what will I be? Will I be pretty? Will I be rich? Here's what she said to me. Living in Dublin was to live in the world of the cinema. During the holidays, he would frequent the Theatre Deluxe, the Stella, and the Princess, or the Printer, as it was known locally. One and threepence got you into the Printer. He would often go to one cinema in the afternoon and another at night. He remembered going to see Doris Day in a charity showing of Calamity Jane for a shilling on a Saturday morning in the Adelphi. He managed to see three films that day. Bogart and Dean and Brando were his heroes, and he fell in love with Grace Kelly and Kim Novak and Janet Lee. And then, in 1956, a new sound burst onto the screen. One, two, three o'clock, four o'clock, rock. Five, six, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, rock. Nine, ten, eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock, rock. We're going to rock around the clock tonight. But you should glad to ride so... There was trouble in the Carlton cinema when Rock Around the Clock was shown. Teddy boys jived in the aisles and even cut up the seats. His father said that music was a bad influence, but rock and roll was here to stay. Back in school, Brother Anthony started a record club, and soon Lonnie Donegan, the Everly Brothers, and Pat Boone echoed down the corridors. It wasn't all fun, however. The leaving cert was approaching. What would he do after school? Teaching, probably, if he got the marks. Or maybe junior executive in the civil service. He would try for that, too. He remembered walking five miles out to Port Leisha to post his application in time. Teaching or the civil service, there didn't seem to be much else to choose. He chose to do agricultural science rather than commerce for the Leaving Cert, simply because it carried a hundred more marks. He learned about the treatment of a calf after birth, how to mix fertilizers, and the properties of the dual-purpose cow all so that he could become a primary teacher. When I was a lad, I served a term as office boy to an attorney's firm. I cleaned the windows and I swept the floor and I polished up the handle of the big front door. I polished up the handle so carefully that now I am the ruler of the Queen's Navy. Each Christmas, Brother Anthony staged a performance of a Gilbert and Sullivan opera for the students and their families. A stage was constructed in the study hall, so some classes had to study up in the classrooms for a few weeks before the performance. He enjoyed this. It meant less supervision, and it signalled the coming of the Christmas holidays. He himself was too shy to take part, but it was fun to watch his friends dress up as Josephine or Buttercup, or have odd names like Dick Deadeye or Rafe Rackstraw. One Christmas, before they broke up for holidays, Brother Silverius called up Michael Burns during letter-writing to sing once more for the boys 
before his beautiful soprano voice broke. He was now in his final year in boarding school. He was a prefect. At least he could now get a decent-sized dinner. As the leaving cert examination approached, the worries grew. Boys who had ambled through school until now suddenly began getting up at five o'clock in the morning to study. O great St. Joseph of Cupertino, who by your prayers obtained from God that you be asked at your examination the only proposition you knew, and they remained on for late study at night, the leaving cert exam. In those final weeks, they were accorded independence. Suddenly, almost overnight, they were treated as adults. There were no more bounds, no more limitations. He could go down to the lake and wander through the woods. The woods were indeed lovely, dark and deep. Somebody caught a pike in the lake and the chef cooked it for them and almost the whole class dined royally. After all the panic, the exam itself seemed incidental. On the eve of the agricultural science exam, more marks, better chance of being called to teacher training, Brother Joseph brought them for a nature walk across the farm and talked of perennial ryegrass and plantain. He no longer seemed to be Brother Joseph, the teacher. He was just one of the lads. And then it was all over. This time tomorrow where shall I be? Not in this academy. No more Latin, no more French, no more sitting on a hard school bench. He packed his case, cleared out his desk and locker, said goodbye to his pals some, many of whom he would never see again. It was June 1959. A decade was ending, a lifetime beginning. His father came to collect him. The car set off for home. Home. Freedom. No more Latin, no more French. Never did French, anyway. No more sitting over the cattle grid. Goodbye, it seemed to say. Goodbye to porridge. Goodbye to the study hall. To dormitories. To a sausage on Sunday. Goodbye, Rosie. Goodbye, Tim. Eddie. Dez. It was over. He was free. He was going home. This time tomorrow, where will I be? Two, four, six, eight. Who do we appreciate? Ne ambulavaritis in horto pueri. No more Latin. He was going home. He was happy. Why was he lonely? Why was he lonely?